Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. The following conversation between myself and Stephen Jenkinson took place on June 20th, 2021, which is nearly a year earlier than the date of this upload. In listening to it again, I found that it aged well, which is no small feat in the head-spinning changes of our times. The conversation was hosted by Mel Greblow on behalf of The Coterie, an organization based in Australia, which hosts international forums, conversations, and workshops on the ecology of living systems and thought. This podcast is titled, The Assumption of Longevity. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everybody. Um, I'm Mel Grevlow, the founder of Talking Sticks, now The Coterie. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all here this morning to this, what will be an incredibly rich and beautiful conversation. I'm so looking forward to it myself. It's my greatest pleasure to uh, introduce Stephen Jenkinson and Catherine Ingram to our conversation today around the assumption of longevity. It's a, it's a wonderful title. It's a, a very poignant um, and well-timed conversation to have given what's happened in the world over the last 18 months. Um, but it's always a poignant conversation to have, not just in the midst of pandemics where death and our end of life perhaps has come closer to us than ever before, but it's something that I know um, and I valued in my life, contemplating for a long, long time. And so with, I think, Catherine's beautiful contemplative traditions and the Dharma teachings and Stephen's masterful storytelling and lyric, um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation between you both to take us to, you know, what happens when we assume that we live for a long time or in our cultural uh, milieu forever (laughs) and stay young forever what happens to our culture and our collective psyche. I'm going to um, disappear from the screen, but I will be here. I want this conversation to be between you both. If you have any questions that you'd like Stephen and Catherine to address at the end of the conversation, please either raise your electronic hand or, or pop something in the chat. And, and we're just going to feel into that at the end and see whether the conversation might just end naturally between Stephen and Catherine or whether we will take up some of those some of those questions. So settle in with your cup of tea or a glass of wine or a tea in the evening over there, wherever you might be, and, um, and welcome Stephen and Catherine and thank you. Thank you. Well, okay, um, maybe I'll speak first. <laughs> um, Stephen, I've been reading some of your work and, and also I've watched The Meaning of Death, a little video many, many times and shared it many times. And I find when I watch it, it calms me. And I think one of the themes that infuses your work is the naturalness of death. And it's a sense that we in quite contemporary time have lost. When you think that until the 18, well, actually up until 1900, the average lifespan was about 40 years old. Right. And of course, if you go back further, the average lifespan was, was quite a bit less. So people of time, of history, they knew that death could come at any moment. Everybody knew that. Even children, of course, everybody knew that. In our time, since 
well, in our lifetime, actually, our so-called average lifespan has been going higher and higher. And we, especially in the privileged countries, have lived with a great assumption of longevity. And one of the stresses that I've observed throughout this COVID crisis, although this disease has a less than 1% fatality rate, but it has freaked out the entire world into this panic of death lurking over your shoulder, which in truth, it actually always was lurking over our shoulder in terms of possibilities, but it's come home a lot closer to, to people's lives. They've been thinking about it a lot and in a kind of a sense of a lot of fear about that. But I think it's also partly because when you have been having a grand party, like we in the Western world have been having with gulping the resources and having whatever we want instantaneously and traveling all over the world and having a, sort of a constant feed of our desires, the thought of that all suddenly coming to a stop <laughs> has it has caused a lot of depression and anxiety and all of the kind of mental illness that we see rolling about. But it's like we've completely lost the relationship to the truth of the matter. So what I what I want to just say to you in by way of honoring how how powerful I feel your words are, and they're and it's mostly in some kind of transmission that they come to me when I listen, is that it's just a reminder in a deep way of having a friendliness with one's own death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, well, let's, let me start with the friendliness. You know, friendship is not the same thing as affability mm-hmm. or the willingness to go along at any cost by any measure. You could, my simple take on friendship is a severe one. And it goes something like this. Friendship is the willingness to risk the friendship for the sake of the friend. Which is to say, if you act uh, from the point of view of radicalized friendship, particularly in a troubled time like you've described, then the friend may be an early and even permanent casualty. Translation, it's very possible that the friend does not recognize friendship in the actions that you undertake or the positions that you occupy mm-hmm. or the advocacies that you assume, right? Right. And, and we, we see this all the time in circumstances, for example, where families break up and people choose sides and, you know, things of that kind. But what you're talking about now, it, first of all, it, it's, not, it's not apparent to me that the plague, as I prefer to refer to it, that the plague has changed very much at all. And I lament that, to be frank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I came into this, if I can put it this way, I came to the plague as a kind of bizarre cheerleader of sorts. This is what I mean. I hope this doesn't sound too too dark, but um, no, oh well. It doesn't sound dark to me. <laughs> no. um, I, was, I was counting on the possibility that this might have been uh, an of God. Here's what I mean. That by virtue of the advent of the plague, we could get close enough to 
vehement annihilation, to, to glimpse it in the eye mm-hmm. and to chart our course accordingly mm-hmm. and to self-correct in a, in a radical and devastated fashion. And I imagined that we could do so with, as it turned out, a, 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 relatively speaking, a minimal loss of life to do it. In other words, we came close enough to the understanding of pandemical death without bodies lining the streets. I mean, in a few places that did happen. But mm-hmm. by, I mean, speaking as a denizen of the West, it never happened anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my great lament is that we haven't had the bodies in the street. I don't lament that, of course. But the consequence has been that, as usual, the consumer culture has renegotiated its relationship with its finitude, right? With its limits, with its frailties, with its, uh, with its mandatory departure from the scene. I mean, our life is so radically unsustainable that I don't think a reasonable person needs to be persuaded about this. And if you glimpse that and then you allow the plague in, you see the real possibility that we could have, we could have been so deeply challenged by the plague that our basic take on things would never have survived it. And we were willing to be undone without the mechanics of undoing if you know what I mean. And, uh, and alas, it's already passed by. Yeah. I mean, this is not going to happen. Yeah. And a consumer culture is, of course, famous for turning everything into a matter of opinion. <laughs> and that's what it's become now. So mm-hmm. people, you know, in the diatribes that go back and forth across the airwaves, people aren't negotiating their relationship to the plague they're rego- negotiating their relationship to each other's reactivity to okay. the plague instead. Yes. And all it's become is how we feel about it again. Yeah. And it, and it leaves me with my hands in the air wondering, what will it take? What will, it, will it really take a genuine annihilation for the few survivors that are left to decide that maybe this was a good idea that, uh, you know, that lamentably we were forced to stop instead of choosing to stop. And uh, I, I, I can't overstate the melancholy mm. that arises in me when I, when I let that in. Yeah, yeah. I do think we're going to get that practice run, though, Stephen. Uh, I think we are going to be hitting some bumps that are they're going to make this look like truly the good old days <laughs> um, <laughs> and um yeah I, I pay a lot of attention to the climate data which is all just terrible news and uh, going all all of the lines the trajectories are only one direction and they are going exponentially faster so much right. so that even the most hip of the scientists that i listen to and trust they can't keep up with how they fast it's going they're always yeah. they're always falling short and what this of course implies is that obviously this is not sustainable for the nearly 8 billion people that we 
are headed toward hosting, but it's hard to see that it would be sustainable for even a much greatly reduced number. So I think we are going to be seeing die-offs, as they're called. And uh, I don't know if that's going to, I don't know what it'll do, given this little exercise we've just been through and, and your assessment, I agree with. There wasn't much of a waking up to what mattered and to ways that we might you know, go forward in a more intelligent way. Instead, uh, it's just a consolidation of all the worst elements of uh, human greed and power and um, and ignorance, I should throw in. And so I don't know. I don't know what it would take. I guess I have a quite pessimistic view about human nature, with great exceptions, of course. You know, we have an incredible range in this in this creature that we are, an incredible range. And now it does feel like a kind of race in time as to whether a powerful and clear minority, like a, even if it's a 10% tipping point, could prevail in some way. Mm-hmm. I feel that's the moment we live in. We, what a time to be living in it. But as you say, it comes with melancholy. It cannot help but come with melancholy because yeah. we're, we're watching a dying world. Uh, I'll tell you something. I used to do a straw poll in the, in the good old days when I used to be able to meet with people and go out on the road and so forth. <laughs> it seems like an awful long time ago now. And when I used to do so at, at a point that seemed opportune, I would stop the proceedings long enough to ask the following question. All in favor the, of the idea that everybody knows that they're going to die, please raise your hands. And now they would look at me wondering what the con was, of course, and, and is there a trick and am I double speaking or whatever it was. But eventually the hands would slowly go up the flagpole, so to speak, and virtually everybody in the room knew what the right answer was which is different from whether they agreed with me or not. Mm-hmm. But they, they, I mean, they came to see the death guy, right? So, so the death guy's asking them about this, everybody knows they're going to die thing. What's the right answer? The right answer is, you know, don't be left out in the cold, get with the program. And so all the hands would go up. At this point, I knew I had them, you see. And so this is what I would do. I would say, um, now you're sure about this. And they would all allow that they were sure. And I would say, now I know you're sure that everybody else is going to die. But the question is, are you sure that you're going to die? And they would reassure me that they were under no illusion about this matter at all. And this is what I would do with their answer. I would say, you know, I'm old enough to remember the oil crisis of the 1970s. And I can tell you in those days, even in the midst of the crisis, everybody knew, just attend to the language for a second. Everybody knew that there was enough oil for everybody for always. They did know. How could you tell that they knew this is the big question? And the answer was, well, just observe their habits, particularly their habits in the marketplace, their buying habits and uh, and their habits to sort of addictive, repetitive behaviors that weren't really being considered and things of that kind. Now, People would object to when I would say this and they say, but that wasn't true. And I would say, I never said it was true. <laughs> I, said, I said, we knew it. 
which is an entirely different order of, let's call it understanding, right? <laughs> yes. Now, there's no understanding at all in it. It's only habit that's speaking there. Yeah. That's all. I said, so take out oil and put in death and ask yourself the following question. Can you tell by the way your neighbors and your friends and your family behave day in and day out, which is the only place you can behave in the ordinariness of your life, where in there can you tell that this knowledge has, is occupying a position of authority and consequence? And the answer is, you can't. <laughs> because people do not know it. They may suspect it, they may fear it, and all the rest. But knowing has a certain range of consequence that, that you build into the fabric by virtue of how you proceed with this knowledge, no? Mm -hmm. So there's the great, to my mind, the great sorrow of the whole operation is that this is a knowable thing, the radicalized understanding of our limits. It's a knowable thing that's not much known. And how to account for the gap between those two things. And I think... The first order of business is not misanthropy, to be honest, or even to, to use your word pessimism. The first order of business is sorrow mm -hmm. or something approaching a kind of insoluble grief that is very unlikely to go anywhere in the near future. Mm -hmm. Right. So in actual fact, the film called me grief walker. Right. But in actual fact, I'm a grief monger and I have been for, for decades, basically. And the amazing thing is that people who believe that they, quote, agree with me are not willing to buy the mandatory grief-encrusted response mm. to what's become of us and what we've done with what was entrusted to us. Yes. So, I, you know, to my mind, see, tell me what you think about this. Grief is a kind of, it's an awakening. But the sound upon awakening in a time like this is not hallelujah no. or amen or, you know, go tell it on the mountain or any other pseudo victory march song. Yeah. The sound upon awakening in a time like ours really is a sob, right? Yes. And, and, and the most devastating aspect of this is somebody of my age picturing people who are just being born now yeah at my age yes I'm, I'm picturing what their agedness looks like and what the world that we've bequeathing to them looks like some 60 years from now and it's it borders on the unbearable it is unbearable i i, I mean I can't picture it. So for me, um, as I began to take in the horror, I wrote a long form uh, essay called Facing Extinction. <laughs> I wrote it in 2019, but I'd been growing it for many years. And along the way, the knowledge of it, or at least the belief of it, had so metabolized in my body and I had such an intense worry about all the little children in my family, great nieces and nephew, all little, all little toddler types, and now they're in grade school. 
I became so overcome with that sob and a nervousness and a fear for them that I developed really bad, a bad, bad case of shingles on both sides of my body, which is super rare, and I had to be hospitalized. And of course, it, it just felt like my nerves were on fire. Right. So I was then forced, uh, when I got home from the hospital, I was in recovery for about a month at home, to, I had to figure out, how am I going to live with this? Because I was, I was toggling between depression and anxiety, and I felt there was no way for me to look at anything. I wrote it recently, this line, I couldn't watch a bird on a branch without thinking, how much longer will there be birds? So I love what you said, that the response is a sob. I guess I would ask you, and I guess because you have spent so many years of your life sitting by bedsides of people who were, who were dying and also being with the families of those. Yeah. Does the sob lead through to acceptance? I hope not. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is this. I'm familiar, of course, with the language of acceptance and, and in the dominant culture where it comes from, which is it's the stage you're supposed to get to yes. once you've passed through the other four, so to speak. No? Yes, yes. Okay, so it's, I think it's important, just as a matter of historical detail, to apprise ourselves of the following fact, that the, mark, the, the penetration into the ideational marketplace of the book on death and dying has been truly remarkable. That's true. But the predicate of the book is that the people upon whom the research was exacted had known people who died. And the assumption of the book was knowing people who have died means you nearly died yourself. Mm-hmm. In other words, proximity to someone else's death is miraculously transferable or inferable, and your death becomes not only possible but manifest. And then the five stages become what? They're an exercise in coping with what you can't change. In other words, that's an exercise in managing trauma. So my point is the whole assumption was that access to your death is inherently traumatizing. And this is where I part ways vehemently with that whole trajectory. Because my declaration is as follows. There is nothing inherently traumatizing about your death. The trauma of your death derives from a life lived as if it was never going to happen, as if it shouldn't happen, as if you don't deserve it, as if good people don't die. I mean, I know this sounds ludicrous to say it this way, but I promise you, I have no reason to exaggerate what I saw in the trenches, right? None whatsoever. And I'm telling you, the only reason I had a job as a sort of counseling type was because people came to their dying absolutely dumbfounded that it was happening. Yeah. The most foreseeable thing in your life became your undoing. No. And so they were lining up for psychological and psychiatric services, including a lot of drugs. For what? For an entirely knowable event. So how to understand this? 
My answer is, if you live your life in a death-phobic culture, your dying will manifest that culture. It won't be a departure from it. And so anything that a, that a, a death-phobic culture absorbs and warrants and goes along with, with some investigation, you begin to realize the reason a death-phobic culture goes along with euthanasia, for example, is because euthanasia does not fundamentally challenge its death-phobia. It goes along with it. It uh, corroborates the idea that dying is inherently dementing, right? So, so what is a good death and becomes what? A good death becomes the one from, from which you depart as soon as, you know, is possible. I'm sorry, I cut you off. What were you going to say? I was going to say, with regard to euthanasia, what about in cases where someone is just going to linger in extreme, terrible pain for a long time? Yeah. Not just sort of die kind of gently over, t- over time. Um, well, I mean, you're, you're asking about a situation that is far more common than you might imagine. In other words, there's, you're describing a circumstance of gradation here, not, not a difference in kind. People, generally speaking, in a death-phobic culture don't die gently. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's, it's important to recognize that the repertoire available to you from which you choose in order to live out your dying is informed by all the death-phobia that I've been alluding to. Mm-hmm. Okay. The consequence then is you take upon yourself the kind of toxicity of death phobia as a way of contending with dying. So how do you think it's going to go, no matter what the nature of your illness is or your treatment or the secondary consequences or, or the drugs or the rest, mm-hmm. you see? And, and so the, consistently the emphasis was on the wrong syllable, meaning that people would focus upon the malpractice of physicians, for example, that was a favorite one, as you might imagine, or the collusion with the insurance companies in the States was another favorite uh, complaint. But the, but the dilemmas are no less true in circumstances where that doesn't persist. Why? Because the death phobia is there before you have top-down medical practice, mm-hmm. before you have the collusion with the insurance companies and the rest. It's older than that. And it means nobody no good. And so if you're going to die otherwise, forget wise or well, just say otherwise, you're going to have to undertake a kind of rigid, not maybe not rigid is the good word, a, a faithful reconnoiter of the assumptions you bring to dying. And nobody did that willingly that I saw. Mm-hmm. People were dragged kicking and screaming to wondering about the assumptions they brought to their death, right? And like they had enough to go through, of course, and a lot of physical limitations and the rest. But if you wished anything for people, and I did constantly, I wished that they would die differently from how they lived. Why? Here's why. Because if you don't live as if you're going to die, you will die as if you're going to live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
in this uh, idea of people dying otherwise from the prescribed uh, conditionings of the culture. Yeah. Did you see people in that example at all? Did you see anyone, any time, die that way? And and one other part of this question is about saying goodbye to all that you love. I understand that one might be able to free oneself from the the assumptions of the culture, but in the end, finally, you are saying goodbye to all that mattered and all that you loved so dearly. It seems like there's just an inherent racking sorrow that comes with that. And is there any other workaround that you know of? I, you know, I answer this this question the way I answered the first one. I hope I hope not. Mm-hmm. By which I mean, wouldn't it be something if our creativity in avoiding what the demands that are made of us fails. Wouldn't it be something that we weren't able to deke what you're asking me about? <clears throat> but the only reason I had a job is because we're more than successful at um, convincing ourselves uh, about the nature of the deal and our place in it. No, mm-hmm. You could say this. Now, I, I'm saying this to you as a farmer. I'm surrounded on a good day by land that gives me a grudging opportunity to eke out from it some kind of living. But where did the land come from? Did it come from the sky? No, it came from death. Mm -hmm. So the land around me is literally death Mm -hmm. and it's life that grows from it. So life is not a life giving thing. This is absolute apostasy to a Western humanist. It's unthinkable mm-hmm. that you could say that life is not a life-giving thing because of course we cling to it and that's the death phobia I'm referring to. The truth of the matter is life is life-consuming. It's not life-giving. Death is life-giving. Death consumes nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So we could take our, our marching orders from a handful of dirt. Mm-hmm. We really could without 20 weeks in the desert, cross-legged with no food, trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. It's there at hand. It's hiding in plain view, as they say, no? Yeah, I saw you say on one of the interviews I watched, uh, holding, holding a lump of dirt is like holding death in your hand. Death in your hand. Mm-hmm. It's good practice. And it's bad faith to live out your entire life on the take from that dirt. Mm-hmm. And then when the time comes for you to rejoin it, to do something about the bottom line that you've corrupted by your way of life, you opt out. You see, with any manner of psychedelics or, or in, in other words, I, I can hear people reacting to the psychedelic reference or to the euthanasia reference, for example. My point is not you shouldn't take psychedelics or you shouldn't exercise euthanasia. My point is, why are you doing so? Because death unadorned is not good enough. Because death that comes to you instead of the death that you choose is not good enough. So now what marching orders are you obeying? The marching orders of a death phobic culture. 
that feeds you a steady diet of autonomy, self-sufficiency, and self-mastery, none of which is useful to you when you're dying, you see. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a lot of um, quiet in that uh, perspective. Let the dying take its course. And and I wonder, actually, if, it, again, because we have lived in this time where we've had all kinds of medical options, and, I mean, I wonder if in other times people just knew dying might involve lingering pain for a very long time and that you just kind of somehow rode that. But still, pain is pain, you know, physical pain. I've known a number of people who were so ready to die, yet were in so much pain and were still living and were just begging to die, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. One caveat about what you said is that wanting to die and being ready to die are different things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, wanting to die really meant not wanting to live. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really voting for something. It was voting against something. Yes. Being ready to die has nothing to do with how you feel about being alive or your pain or the rest. Please don't, I hope nobody misunderstands me. I am not here mysteriously advocating for some kind of drug-free white knuckle uh, endurance test mm -hmm. when it comes to the ending of your days. I, for one, will not favor that for myself. What I'm talking about is this. The decisions you make about what kind of treatment you take, what course of action you submit yourself to, and for how long, and how you decide what enough already looks like, that shouldn't come from how much you can bear. Mm -hmm. More preferably, it should come from your understanding of what time of life are you in and what does it ask of you, not what is it doing to you, mm -hmm. what does it ask of you. And you have practice in other times of your life to ask this question of yourself. For example, if you've been lucky enough to have children, you know, bio children, so to speak, you know, one of the things that you will come up against routinely is, well, you may have had reasons why you had them, but those reasons are early casualties of having them, right? And then learning the chops of actually, you know, being that person to those young people is a whole other thing that has nothing to do with your motivation or your intention or, frankly, your capacity. Mm -hmm. And you, it's kind of on-the-job training, no? So life is very similar in this respect. Life is an on-the-job job, mm -hmm. right? And you don't get to practice being alive. Mm -hmm. So let me, if I could, turn the corner and come back to this question of longevity uh, as, as I don't know who initiated perhaps yourself and, and let me ask you a question. I'm not good at asking questions because I'm habitually answering them. So, so forgive me. This I may come across in a sort of lumpy and unachieved way. But how about this? What do you suppose the consequence is now? By now, I mean, you know, 16 months into the plague, virtually across the world. What's the consequence amongst those cultures who've been unwilling to understand their limitations 
and their frailties and their endings and their undoings as God-given. Not God-punishing, God-entrusting. Well, what I'm observing is a kind of roaring 20s mentality. That's brilliant, yeah. I've thought about this many times myself, the roaring 20s, exactly. Please go ahead. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, like basically like a, a kind of hedonism slash celebration. And like the roaring 20s, you know, there might be some of us who have a sense that, that the party isn't going to be long-lasting. So that's, that's what I observe. Is that the consequence or is it the full consequence? I don't know. That's what the immediate consequence looks like. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're describing a situation in which a hangover looks like a party. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if the people listening uh, wanted to be able to ask us something or have us respond to something. Yes, I think that they can chat in us a question. So why don't we, um, we can open that up. So Mel, do you want to moderate that for us? I would love to do that. So please, anyone, if you do have a question, pop it into the, to the chat now or raise your hand. Okay. Uh, while we're waiting for the question to come, if I could respond to what you've said. Mm. You know, Misanthropy is understandable. It even appears to be unavoidable or inevitable or deserved. But I would like to make the following case. That there doesn't seem to be another life form on this planet that has opted for misanthropy with respect to human beings. Only we have done that. That's my way of saying that our our inclination towards a kind of principled self-hatred about the last 50 or 100 years or whatever it is, is not conscience speaking. There's some a degree of unconsciousness about that problem, about that inclination, about that habit. And so if we are to awaken in any way to the consequences that we've put into motion, Misanthropy will not be a midwife to our awakening. So that's, that's me putting into the air some kind of cosmetic surgery to our inclination to believe that self-hatred will deliver us to a degree of conscience that will in turn deliver us to a course of right action and so forth. I've never seen guilty people benefit from their guilt. That's it's really what I mean. We have to find another orientation to our own recent history other than detesting it or being ashamed of it, you see. Yeah. Um, a question here, Catherine and Stephen, how to live with this awareness and not feel alone with it? Is there a lapel badge we can wear to recognise each other? Stephen, do you want to answer that one? Yes. Yes, my answer is... I hope there's no lapel badge, number one. And number two, where do you suppose it's written that by virtue of undertaking this understanding, you can avert being alone? In other words, 
there are certain consequences to coming to, to awakenness, right? And one of them is the falling away of an old understanding of companionship and uh, kinship even. So, so kinship in a time like ours is less and less likely to be founded upon uh, fellow feeling and more inclined towards a sense of shared understanding about how things came to be as they are. Not about we are the increment of our guilt or responsibility, but how things have come to be as they are. There's a, there's a kinship available to us in that, that our insistence on sameness banishes. Mm. That's my take on it. Mm. Nice. Someone uh, earlier on wrote, what then would be the ideal response to this plague? What would you say? <laughs> well, the word ideal. Yes. <laughs> it's in the realm of fantasy, isn't it? But um, it would have been taking account of really what mattered, how can we cooperate, share, how can we try to solve some of these huge existential problems we face, you know, all those kinds of things, but that's not how it went, so. And it's not how it's going, going and it's not how it's going to go, clearly. Mm-hmm. My two cents on how it could have been otherwise is we might have understood the plague not in sort of quasi-biblical terms, as some kind of visitation of divine opprobrium upon us, but simply, I say simply, not easily, simply as a consequence of us mucking about in the genetic um, uh, playground, you see? In other words, modern human beings, to make it gross generalization, are deeply unfond of limits and are insulted by limits and deem it their personal right to overcome the limits that governed their predecessors. And in a phrase, that is why we are where we are, not just with the plague, but with what preceded it and with what will follow it. I'll I'll give you a, a, a vision of the near future. Uh, In my country here, some few years ago, the federal government decided that the time had come for it to acknowledge the considerable wrongdoings that were done in a context of the residential school system visited upon uh, Indigenous young people and their families. Uh, And the measures they took, including a, a public acknowledgement of this wrongdoing, a public confession of wrongdoing and, and palpable guilt in the matter, and establishing a fund to, in a bizarre fashion, to recompense people for their lost childhood and the mayhem that it visited upon their adult years. Okay, you know, let, let's just, there's, there's no need to comment on, on the legitimacy of the move, but that's what they did. But here's the point I wanted to, uh, to uh, bring to people's attention. They say, uh, and I don't have a lot of, you know, affirmation about it. But anecdotally, I heard over and over again that once the apology came out and the fund was established, adult survivors of residential school began to kill themselves Mm -hmm. in numbers that had not been seen any time before that. 
Interesting. So, so how to understand that people could live the anonymity and the ignominy of having gone through that as children, but could not endure the acknowledgement of that in the public sphere. The reason I'm pointing this out is I think there's a parallel waiting to unfold once the all clear signal is blown with respect to this plague. That is, that the plague has done things of such magnitude to people's understanding of who they are to each other and what their rights are with respect to each other's health and, and so on. That, and people have seen things in each other as a consequence of forced isolation and, and forced intimacy, if I can use that phrase. And I think people will find what they've seen in each other to be unlivable. And it may not force people to suicide, but there's no doubt it will force people to separation and divorce and, and disowning of each other and, and all the things you think the all clear would have, would have granted to us will essentially be unavailable to many, many people by virtue of the life that we live before the pandemic and before the lockdown and by virtue of the consequence of not knowing how to live otherwise in the aftermath of the lockdown. Just leaving a little space for a pause there to, yeah, to be able to take this in. Um, there's, a, there's another question um, just to, in that pause. What and where are alternatives, alternative behaviours to those in our death-phobic cultures and how can we practise them? And I think, Stephen and Catherine, it would be lovely to hear from both of you about that because, because of your life's work. Catherine, from your, your teachings of the Dharma and, and Stephen, your, your work that we're talking of now. Uh, do you mind reading the question again? Sure. It's what and where are alternatives or alternative behaviours to those in our death-phobic cultures and how can we practise them? Hmm. The only thing that's coming to me to say, and it's, I guess you could say it's my own sort of practice. I don't really use that word much, but it's my own perspective, is that more and more I feel that I live in a gigantic mystery, <laughs> right? Just I used to conceptualize a lot more, and it's a habit that seems to be leaving me. I don't know if it's something to do with my memory or my... <laughs> mental facilities but but I I don't name things so much and I don't try to figure things out and I used to that used to be my primary occupation but I don't I don't live in the conceptualizing mind so much anymore I live a lot more in a sense of of mystery and wonder and in my senses and I'm receiving information that comes through even that I don't trust. I don't put it in any kind of um, scrolls. But, you know, I like, I like to say every now and again, the mystery winks at me, like some little revelation will come, an aha moment that I usually forget very quickly. But um, that's my only way to answer that is to, I don't know if it's a what or a where. It's a kind of a, a living way of perceiving that is uh, not fixated 
on a particular story or a, or a belief system. I'm always delighted to have any of my belief systems shattered because I, I prefer the mystery. <laughs> so I don't know if that answered that question. Stephen, do you want to have a go at it? You, you know I do. Um, <laughs> okay. So I'm going to be I'm going to answer the question in a rabbinic fashion with a, with a question. Do you suppose I'm saying to the the mysterious question asker, do you suppose that the reason we're in the state we're in is because we've never never had access to the alternatives that you're asking about? Do you think it's the dearth of other possibilities that have visited uh our circumstance upon us by default. This is my way of saying something. And it's, and it's this. We are not in the circumstance we're in because we haven't been able to answer the question that's just been asked of both of us. It's because we keep asking this question that we are in the state that we're in. There are other causes too. But this is an enormously consequential thing to keep asking for solutions to a problem that, generally speaking, there's very little appetite for exploring or understanding. In other words, it's often called the great grief bypass. That's what solutions are, that you go right to the next greatest idea of how not to be like this. And here's the thing, the appetite for those kind of questions and answers come from the dilemma. They're not alternatives to it. They're the dilemma speaking its own name, you see. So my instinct always in these matters is to say enough already with the how-to questions or how to make it better or how not to be like this. And try this instead. How have things come to be as they are? Do you really imagine that your predecessors were so brainless and adult that this is all they could manage. If you let that in, the possibility that people have inadvertently passed on to us the world that we thought was permanent, can, that can undo you in a second. My handy way of saying it is, wisdom is hard to come by, but prejudices come with the mother's milk. Wisdom takes enormous amount of labor and can't be inherited from one generation to the next. Prejudice, on the other hand, is the most inheritable thing we have. That's another way of saying, if you're really interested in a better day, it seems to me you begin in our corner of the world with wondering how we got to be as we are, not finding another solution to how not to be like this. And I think there's big corners of the world that are pleading with us to do that very thing and stop turning to them as the solution to what we've become. Fun guy, huh? You know, Stephen, it's interesting you, you, you make that comment because I, I, have a, I have a suspicion that a lot of the people that have joined us today, and, and I know that a lot of the people that are part of our community have a very close relationship to what you said very early on about yourself, that they have perhaps been grief walkers too, but our culture tells us at every turn to be happy. 
And, and as one myself, I think, you know, I've always had this connection to what I feel is probably a universal grief. It's not just my own. Um, but I've at times through my whole life shut it down because, you know, you, you're just dark, you're gloomy, you're <laughs> um, all of those things. But I really do feel that, and I want to honour this in our community of people who have come today, I really feel that we're walking together and so the question that we that was just asked and, you know, maybe another way of answering it is just to keep embracing who you are through finding your inner wisdom and, and answering the questions that you just posed as well, to have that kind of exercise, that muscle of disdain for that cultural kind of authority that we've been, that's been shoved upon us and makes us constantly think that we have to be a certain way. Does anyone have one last question? We probably have time for one more. Mel, I see one here that I think both Stephen and I probably would want to answer. What comes after the sobbing runs dry? Hmm. And, and perhaps related to that, another question as well there, how shall we hold our sorrow and live each day? I think those two yes. complement each other's questions. It would be lovely to finish with those. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. In my own case what happens for me is a kind of quiet and I'm not even going to call it acceptance or anything. I'm just going to call it quiet that sometimes when I have either metaphorically sobbed, that is had a massive grief, uh, be, be overtaken by grief, not necessarily actually physically sobbing, but sometimes with tears as well. What can then happen is just, pure quiet, like nothing left inside at all. I'm told, I don't know much about uh, hormonal things, but I'm told that tears actually have calming hormones, that the release of tears triggers some kind of hormonal response in the body that calms it down. (laughs) Maybe that's true. It seems to be possible. Uh, So that's how I would answer that, that I don't know if the word acceptance applies here, but at the very least, some kind of calming in the facing of what is, a witnessing presence that is just not whining and not commenting and and is not in resistance. Yeah, that's, that's that's for me the answer to that question. The problem with uh, this this answer is that I'm not yet <clears throat> facing the last moments, and there might be a sob that that doesn't necessarily lead to quiet before I die. I hope it would, but we'll see. <laughs> well, uh, you're familiar with the name Jack Cornfield? Yeah, he's an old friend. Old, old, okay, old. so he wrote a book. I haven't read it, but I appreciate the title deeply. It's called... After the ecstasy, the laundry. (laughs) The reason I'm quoting that, and I'm no armchair Buddhist by any stretch, but I appreciate the the understanding here uh, because this this speaks to the question very much. What happens, uh, I'll say it differently. So I saw a lot of death. I saw more death than most virtually anybody sees in combat, right? And the assumption is I should be out of my mind because exposure to death apparently dislodges you, you know. Uh, that's not a given. And in my case, that's not what occurred. 
my desire to live was enhanced to an almost unbearable degree. And it remains that way. So I find being alive very habit forming. And, and it's not a habit I'm looking to, to outgrow, you see. So, so an, an important realization is that the process of dying has a momentum to it. And it's, it's a momentum that's autonomic in the sense that it will, it will prevail over any plan you have or any personal style you might have. And, uh, and this, this will draw the family in as well. You see, the dying itself takes a long time to die. It's not over with the expiration of breath. It continues. The death takes a long time to die. Something in the order of eight to 14 months is how I tended to see it. And my answer to the questioner is this. That's when the work begins, when the momentum ends, you see. So sobbing is its own accomplishment, no doubt. But sobbing is uh, it's good enough when you're sobbing, but any, any physique can only take so much of that kind of sorrow, right? The kind of high-end industrial strength sorrow. The point of the sorrow is for you to find an engaged way to rejoin the, the human circus. That's what it's there for, to enable you to rejoin the circus, to rejoin the walking wounded, as I tend to call the rest of us, and to oblige us to proceed otherwise, finally. Why? Because we've glimpsed our own death in the death of another. And having done so, we find it exceedingly difficult to take seriously what claimed our attention prior. And this will make you either an object of fascination at parties, or you will be crossed off the list of any invitation uh, that may have come your way otherwise. <laughs> you can tell what my experience has been. <laughs> Not many invitations. I don't mind so much, but I, you know, without any, being glib at all, I, I'm saying this, that the, the obligation of someone who's glimpsed something primordial is to not attempt to relive the life that prevailed before that glimpse. That glimpse is entrusted to you by everything that's divine. And it seems to me the order of business comes to this. If it is one of the fingerprints of all things divine to be enduring, somewhat constant, um, pervasive, and the rest, then surely it is in the thumb marks of all things human to be temporary and hedged in by limit and, and by frailty. And that's where our humanity appears, in our frailty. Every act we make to overcome our frailty, we are overcoming our humanity unawares. Well, I, want, I was just thinking that something, there's something I say all the time, and that is that I only hang out with the brokenhearted. Um, <laughs> and, and that's because 
first of all, they, they do go to the end of the spectrum where the hurt is and where the sobs are and where the darkness is. But they also have a capacity for a type of joy and a, a type of lightness that you can't get otherwise if you're only living in the middle of the spectrum in a little tiny, you know, slot. If you're living on the whole spectrum, which comes with risk because you do get the end where the sobs are, but you also get the delightful end. And also I, I love to hang out with the brokenhearted because they're so much more tender and careful in their relationships in terms of their kindness. So I'm so delighted to meet one of the brokenhearted and, uh, and that is a fun guy for me. <laughs> so. You say that now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm safely in Australia, so. <laughs> There's just such exquisiteness in what you both say and um, and I thank you deeply for that. Thank you enormously. It's been a great pleasure and thank you to all the folks who joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Amen. This has been In The Deep. You can find the entire list of In The Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com where you can also book a private phone session and view upcoming events, such as our monthly Zoom sessions. I want to deeply thank our donors for your support and encourage our other regular listeners to consider making either a one-time or a recurring donation. We would also be grateful for a review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you're listening. Till next time. Thank you.